0: I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside this morning and invite you to take a Bible to open it in the New Testament to a letter called 1 Timothy. We'll be reading chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. But we begin this year considering uh, as a church family our own mission statement to love God, to care for all people, and to communicate his word and we believe that those phrases summarize not just a single verse in the Bible but the the whole teaching of scripture of what God desires for us in our relationship with him and how that's to be worked out in our relationship with each other but therefore at the beginning of every year we desire to consider those themes from different parts of the Bible, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the Gospels and the letters, from the history books and the prophets. And so what we're reading today, it's labeled by a name, Timothy, because this is a letter from one leader in the church named Paul to another one named Timothy. It's towards the end of Paul's life, and Paul has this sense that he's not going to live much longer. And so he's giving instruction to another leader in the church about how to carry on the the good things that have happened for future generations. But many of the earliest disciples when they first heard about Christ, any of them that saw him risen from the dead, they initially thought that even within their own lifetime, he would come back again. And they were excited to see the one who descended to the throne return and be back among them. But as They then began to go throughout all the world and planting churches and spreading the gospel. Eventually, as they got older, they realized, one, some of them had already passed. They'd been martyred for the faith. But others had been imprisoned and others were just growing old. And they realized that they got to see the beginning of this kingdom inaugurated, but they probably were not going to be around to see it culminated. And so they had to begin to think through how to prepare the current people to accept the responsibility to grow into maturity and take this forward for future generations so paul is writing to timothy as one of these people for whom he desires him to carry this forward and in the first chapter we saw last week that his emphasis to timothy was to never forget the good news of the gospel that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners that that is the truth that we want passed down from generation to generation. That is the good news. That is the message. And he's saying to Paul, what we're doing and how we organize church and why we gather together is primarily to continue telling the story of the good news, of who Christ is and what he's done. And so we're here primarily to express our love to God in response for the great love that he showed us. What he's gonna say here in chapter two is if our focus is really on God and flowing from the gospel, then one of the most distinctive characteristics about us as a church is the importance we place on prayer. If we really believe that there's a God out there and he's really entered into our time and space and he's brought a savior, then one of the things that should, be, that should distinguish us is then the passion that we have in communicating with him, in praying to him. So we're going to read the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And that's where we'll stop. We'll pick it up next week at the end of chapter two and then into chapter three as we consider what it means to care for one another. But here, the, one of the first points of application that he gives to Timothy, if he's really going to hold on to the gospel and pass it on for future generations and keep Jesus primary, he says, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I really appreciate how this is paraphrased in the message by Eugene Peterson. This is verse one. The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. If part of what we're doing, and the main thing of what we're doing in gathering together is to express our thankfulness to God and that we believe he's alive and he hears us, then that should be visible by our coming to him in prayer. And Paul wants Timothy to recognize that everything is to be done by prayer. Everything the church does is to be infused by and covered in prayer. We're never supposed to drift away from the gospel and the good news that Christ came, and we're also never start to run ahead and start doing things without maintaining our connection to our primary lifeline, the source of our strength and our power in God himself. And so just like there's a danger in drifting away from the good news, in that there's the same danger of drifting away from God himself, that we begin to rest on our own knowledge, or our own experience, and we just do things because we've always done them and we don't give a lot of thought to them and we don't continue to pray for them. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't make that mistake. If you want to see the gospel lost for future generations, just keep doing things like you've always done them in your own power, and your own strength, And don't maintain the vibrancy of an ongoing relationship with me. If you want to see it passed on to future generations, then model for people what it means to be passionate about prayer. That they look at you and say, I I don't think you're an expert, that you know everything, but you do seem to know God. And you seem to be in communion with God. These aren't just ideas in your mind and in your head, but there's a, a reality that can't be denied about how you interact with God. And he specifically says to pray for people in high places and people of authority. So he's not just saying to pray for what Timothy and those in Ephesus do when they gather in the church, but it's everything by prayer, but also to pray for everyone. People in authority and in high places. They know, Paul and Timothy and all of the believers who were raised in their Jewish tradition, that when a person in a high place changes his perspective on you, things become more difficult to lead a quiet and peaceful life. So the story of the nation of Israel is because of a famine that they needed to go into Egypt and towards the end of the book of Genesis. One of them had already gone ahead in a person named Joseph by circumstances that he didn't control, but he made it there by the betrayal of his brothers, but had risen to authority and power in this empire in Egypt. But he said to anyone who would listen that there's a famine coming and they need to prepare. For seven years they need to get ready because after that's going to be seven years that are really hard, and we're only going to be able to endure those seven if we're obedient in the first seven. And so he was elevated to power and eventually his whole family was brought to Egypt and they were all given provision and safety in this foreign land. When we open the book of Exodus, then we're introduced to a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and who now looked at these people who had come here as immigrants to Egypt and said, actually, we don't like them anymore and we don't want them here anymore and we have to be really careful what they do. Because if they grow too big and they grow too strong and they turn against us, we're going to have a problem on our hands. And that person in a high place turning against the very people who'd been living a quiet and peaceful life among them for such a long time then made life horrible for them. So that the only remedy was then exodus was to be removed from it miraculously by God himself to take in, into a place. But then all through the wilderness and then even before the promised land that the people were reminded and informed of how God had provided them in all of those circumstances, that he had been faithful to them. But they knew that what they did and how they worshiped and as a family, how they could pass on their own traditions and understanding of their law was affected by the environment that they were in and sometimes were easier and sometimes were more difficult Paul knows this in the first century Uh, friends of his and Priscilla and Aquila as he encountered them once in Corinth he found out the emperor of Rome in the capital city of Rome for a period of time said we don't want Jews here any longer and he banished them all out of the city they had been welcomed for a period of time and then a person in high place said we don't want you anymore and said get out of here that affected directly Paul as a Jew but then friends that he had come to encounter and eventually that was lifted. So he's saying to Timothy, yes, do what you're doing and be the most effective pastor you can be and leader but recognize even everything that you do together as a group of house churches in a city called Ephesus is gonna be significantly impacted by what's done in high places a decision can be made by a person that kicks all of you out or half of you out and that will disrupt what it's like to be a Christian in Ephesus. So Paul is saying pray, don't, don't lose sight of that if you enjoy freedom for a period of time, don't neglect that be thankful for that, gather and worship but don't assume that that freedom is just always and forever going to be there and that it's going to be ongoing. Continue to pray for those who are in high places, who make decisions that affect a large group of people so that you can keep on leading the quiet life that you desire. And this is something in our own history um, has been a tension throughout as we fight for freedom and then also extend that freedom in ways that are for some and not for others. There's a tension between that. We're actually only about 30 miles away from a golf course in Canton that was founded. It's the first golf course ever completely designed and funded by an African-American. He came home as a military veteran from World War II, having served his nation honorably, but came home and was still not free to play golf at a whole bunch of places. So he said, okay, I'll build my own course. And he did. It's called Clearview Golf Club and it has an Ohio marker as a historical registered place now protected by the state of Ohio to identify the significance. He's since been inducted in the PGA Hall of Fame, and then his daughter became a PGA professional, and she's been inducted in the female PGA Hall of Fame. But this was someone who was living a quiet and noble life, actually defending the very freedoms that we enjoy, but found himself outside of the ability to enjoy some of those because of the color of his skin. That's one of the issues present right now. Whatever your, issue, whatever your belief is on the immigration debate, whenever a person makes a policy that affects a whole group of people, there's a whole bunch of tensions that develop. So one of them in the Dreamer Act, in telling a group of people who came, not by choice of their own, but by their parents coming here illegally, and so they've been here and they've grown up here, to say to all of them, you're no longer welcome Includes now 900 to 1,000 who are actively serving in the U.S. military who were invited by our armed services to serve in spite of citizenship because of unique skills and abilities they had to help us language skills medical skills whole variety of skills but about 900 to 1,000 who currently serve to protect what is the quiet life we desire to live. And that's one of the things that has to be determined over the next couple of months as policy takes place. And again, whatever your perspective is on it, Paul would be saying, like he said to Timothy to all of us, how much have you been praying about this? How much have you been talking to God, not just listening to the news and not just getting angry, but really pouring out your heart before God, recognizing that Like you and I can make a mistake and it affects like two people, right? But people in high positions of authority and power, if they make a mistake or if they do anything out of sinful reason or wrong reasons, it affects a whole lot of people. And do we feel the the burden of that even though we're not in that role or in that responsibility that we would desire to pray for them? And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, Yes, there's everything else that is going to be in this letter about how to live a godly life and how to organize the church and who should do what, but he knows all of that is also affected by who's in authority, who's in power, the decisions they make. And sometimes those decisions can happen in such a way that they put the wind at your back, and sometimes those decisions can be made that they feel like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if I'm on the good list anymore. And how do, I, how do I live out my faith? How do I honor and live the quiet life that I want to live if I'm not sure how things are going to go? So Paul is saying everything we do has to be covered in prayer. Every way we know how to pray, to pray for everyone that we know. But he says, especially those who are rulers and in governmental authority over us, that we would uplift them in prayer. Knowing that our life is affected by them. And he also wants us to do that because he looks at the model of his Savior, Jesus Christ, and he says, We want to do this now as his followers because this is what he's done for us as the mediator for all people. So we want to cover everything we do in prayer and pray for everyone we know because we see that what has happened in Jesus Christ. Is that someone has come to be the mediator between God and humanity? That's what verses 3 through the rest say. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time for which I was appointed. In a preacher. So saying we're praying for the freedom to pass on this message. And this message is that there is one mediator, one ransom for all people. So that the church is to be a place that prays for everyone and all things because it cares about everyone and all people because though Christ came from a specific ethnicity with a history in the Jewish people, he made clear that his sacrifice was not only for them, but was for all people. And so the church cares about what is going on that affects not just ourselves, but that in fact affects everyone, because we desire that everyone would be saved in Christ. That that's why he came into the world. That's not just why he made us in the beginning, but that's why his son entered into time and space to be the mediator, the one person who could fully represent all parties involved. That's what it means to be a mediator or an advocate. Completely able to represent God and heaven and having experienced life on this earth as a human being, completely able to represent humanity and to be the person who could bring about reconciliation for them. Well, if that was what he was working toward, shouldn't that be what we pray toward? If, if we say we're following him and we want this good news to be passed down for future generations, and this is the good news that he's come into the world to save sinners and he's brought about reconciliation, then as we're praying for everything and trying to do everything by prayer, and then we think of our Savior and what he was willing to do, doesn't that compel us to desire to see his work and his prayer come true? And if you look at John 17, one of the last prayers that Christ prayed before he went up on the cross, and say, what did he cry out to his Father right before he went to the cross? It's a prayer for unity that all of his disciples would know him, that they would live in love and that they would be united with with one another. As Christ knew they're gonna come from all different places, all different backgrounds, all different struggles and they're gonna have a bunch of reasons to not like each other. But I'm offering myself as a mediator so that they could be one and now I'm telling them as a people to live in such a way that they build bridges between one another between people that they do not know because that they would desire the very same thing that God desires verse 4 God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth and that desire is one that he has not in a way that ever coerces or forces someone into the faith but as an invitation to them to consider that we would present the truth in such a way in our freedom and opportunity to live a quiet and a godly life that they would desire to join what it is that we say we have the uniqueness of the gospel and how it lives itself out among people so we want to do everything by prayer and we want to do it because we want to see everyone in Christ and the last thing he says about prayers we want to see every prayer lived so verse eight, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Sometimes we'll hear that and say, okay, Paul's giving us instructions about how we're supposed to pray, okay? So we didn't do that this morning. We, we should have all raised our hands, men, in prayer. I mean, it's not wrong to raise your hands in prayer, but that's, Paul's not giving instructions about the form of prayer. He's saying, what I want to see, Timothy, among your people is that when they lift their hands toward one another, they're not about to start a fight with one another. I want them to lift their hands in prayer. I want to see a group of men who aren't looking to harm each other, but who are actually praying out to God. That they behave in a way that's consistent with what they're praying. So if our prayer is the freedom to live a quiet and godly life, then our lives should be characterized as not being overly quarrelsome. (laughs) But we can get along with different kinds of people. We're not the one burning bridges all over the place. But we're building those bridges and we're connecting with people. And so in that way, we are living according to the prayer that we're praying. It's the same thing that he says for the women. Likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control and with what accords with godliness with good works. It's not saying you can't ever wear gold or have something that is expensive in what you're wearing. But if what you're praying for is, again, the freedom to live in such a way that you can communicate the gospel to others and make it attractive to them and serve them, then it would make sense that if that's what you're praying, then what you're living is a life of self control. It's not just that you don't want other people to bother you and inhibit your freedom. But you've learned a way to say no to yourself when your own desires are to spend everything on you or do everything for you and you say, wait a minute, but that's not what I'm called, that's not how I'm called to live. If I'm praying for other people and I care about other people and I want them to come to the knowledge of the truth, then yeah, I should live in such a way that my prayers are infused by good works so that we do everything by prayer, but prayer never becomes a substitute for action never becomes a substitute for how we treat people, and unfortunately, now almost any time a serious tragedy takes place, one of the ways people respond is just saying, "You know, prayers, prayers for Houston, prayers for this, wherever something happens." And increasingly, there is pretty quickly now sort of an anger at people who express prayer to <laughs> so, say, "Well, how many times are you going to pray about this but do nothing?" And the, the truth in that statement is, yes, all of us, by saying we pray for something, are indicating a care and a concern and a desire of our heart. And if it's really a care and a concern and a desire of our heart, then it should be matched by action. And fortunately, I do think most people who say that they are praying are living in a way consistent with that. <laughs> Social media doesn't exactly allow the platform to express all of that. And someone simply saying they're praying does not mean they're not living their life accordingly. It means you can only say so many things that are appropriate in light of something really terrible that happens. Right? So Twitter reducing communication to 140 characters. Churches all over the country did that like 30 years ago. They had signs where they put letters in the signs. And so they'd put like a short phrase. You can only fit so many letters in the sign. You had like two to three sentences at most that you could put. Do you know what most churches realize? That's a really bad way to communicate. They don't do it that much anymore. How much can you say in five words? Not a whole lot. Especially the more complex an issue is. But we do want to say five meaningful words to someone to say, I love you and I'm praying for you. But yeah, that only has meaning if we really love them and if we really pray for them. And that's one of our challenges in our day and age, to make clear to people that don't understand us and that don't believe in us, but that we mean what we pray and we pray what we mean and we're willing to live out according to that. So I found this sermon incredibly helpful. And it's coming from the Gospels, where right after a significant event in Christ's life, the transfiguration, he comes down from the mountain and there was a boy who was longing to be healed and the disciples tried to heal him and they couldn't. And then Christ comes on the scene and Christ is able to cast out the demon. And the disciples, after it's all done, they take him to the side and they're like, okay, so why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we cast out? And the answer that Christ gives is profound. He says, this kind can only be driven out by prayer which means his disciples were acting in such a way that they'd had previous experiences, they'd seen Christ do things, and they were trying to do it, but they weren't doing it in prayer, or their prayer wasn't informed by the faith that needs to go with that prayer to see meaningful action take place. And so this sermon is entitled The Answer to a Perplexing Question. And this is one of the ways that, this is from Martin Luther King Jr. that he reflects on the disciples' question. They had tried to do by themselves what could be done only after they so surrendered their natures to God and that his strength flowed freely through them. So they tried to do what could only be done after they would have been surrendered to God himself. So they were religious, they were sincere, but they were disconnected from the source of their power. And so he begins to reflect on this question of how do we cast out evil? And he identifies two traps that we often fall into. The first trap is a non-religious trap, and the second trap is a religious one. But this, first he criticizes the non-religious one. The first calls upon us as humans to remove evil through our own power and ingenuity, In the strange conviction that by thinking, inventing, and in governing, we will at last conquer the nagging forces of evil. Give people a fair chance and a decent education, and they will save themselves. This idea, sweeping across the modern world like a plague, has ushered God out and escorted man in, and has substituted human ingenuity for divine guidance. Some people suggest that this concept was first introduced during the Renaissance, when reason dethroned religion, or later when Darwin's origin of species replaced a brief a belief in creation by the theory of evolution, or when the Industrial Revolution turned the hearts of men to material comforts and physical conveniences. At any rate, the idea of the adequacy of man to solve the evils of history captures the minds of people, giving rise to the easy optimism of the 19th century and the doctrine of inevitable progress. One of the modern humanists' popular for saying the future is not with the churches but with the laboratories, not with the prophets but with the scientists, not with piety but with efficiency. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power of his achievement. Man has subpoenaed nature to appear before the judgment seat of scientific investigation, None doubt that man's work in the scientific laboratories has brought unbelievable advances in power and comfort, producing machines that think and gadgets that soar majestically through the skies, stand impressively on the land, and move with stately dignity on the seas. But in spite of these astounding new scientific developments, the old evils continue, and the age of reason has been transformed into an age of terror. Selfishness and hatred have not vanished, with an enlargement of our educational system and an extension of our legislative policies. A once optimistic generation now asks in utter bewilderment, why could we not cast it out? The answer is rather simple. Man by his own power can never cast evil from the world. Then he goes on to critique a religious idea. The second idea from removing evil from the world stipulates that if man waits submissively upon the Lord, God will do it all by himself. Rooted in a pessimistic doctrine of human nature, this idea which eliminates completely the capability of sinful man to do anything was prominent in the Reformation, the great spiritual movement that gave birth to the Protestant concern for moral and spiritual freedom and served as a necessary corrective for a corrupt and stagnant medieval church The doctrines of justification by faith and the priesthood of all believers are towering principles that we as Protestants must affirm. But, for some, the doctrine of human nature overstated the corruption of man. The Renaissance was too optimistic and parts of the Reformation too pessimistic. The former so concentrated on the goodness of man that it overlooked his capacity for evil. The latter so concentrated on the wickedness of man that it overlooked his capacity for goodness." And so this idea that all we have to do as followers is pray and not do anything else. If God is gonna do something about it, he's gonna do something about it and we bear no responsibility. And Martin Luther King Jr. in preaching said and challenges people to say no to both of those things. Don't listen to the people who say we just need to get God out of this and we'll advance through the laboratory and through discovery everything we need but he also challenged people don't listen to those who are saying that we bear no obligation and no responsibility. That God's given us minds and hearts, and He's given us this gift of prayer. And in giving us this gift, He has so ordered the world that certain things do not happen in the world apart from our prayers. That if we don't pray for them, if we don't long for them, and then if we don't follow up our prayers with our actions, then they won't happen. And that's one of the convictions we have to have about prayer. If we don't believe prayer changes anything, we won't pray much. If we allow our prayers to change us, then we will grow in the depth at which we commit in our lives to pray for things. So here's how he resolves it. Herein we find the answer to the perplexing question. Evil can be cast out not by man alone, nor by a dictatorial God. But when we, and this is the quote on the back of your handout, when we open the door and invite God through Christ to enter, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he will be with me. A divine and human confrontation will transform our sin-ruined lives into radiant personality. So as a nation as tomorrow we celebrate uh, his birthday, much for us to give thought to in his convictions about our responsibility as people who pray, to neither give up on prayer as many do and say it's it's meaningful and it does nothing, but to allow our prayers to inform and shape us so that we're never disconnected from the source that we pray in every way we know how for everyone we know, that everything we do we cover in prayer. And then that draws us into the memory of Christ who came as the mediator and the ransom for all people, desiring that we could live our lives in such a way and follow up our prayers with the kind of good works that make Christ compelling to people who don't know him. Let's pray. Lord, we do lift up those who serve in high places. Those who today don't know any of us personally but who make decisions that affect all of us collectively. We don't want to make light of that responsibility. We don't want to pretend that we would know how to do it if we were in their shoes. We just want to come before you humbly and acknowledge that we are creatures, we are limited, our perspective is not complete. And so we do pray for those who are in high places. We pray for our president and his administration. We pray for our congress leaders and those who make decisions in our house and our senate. We pray for our judicial leaders who make decisions about what is and is not legal in our country, what is and is not constitutional. We pray at a at a state level even for our own governor and his administration, for our local mayors and city council people, our members of the board of education and all levels of governing authority and responsibility that are before us. Because we believe that even all of them together don't have the answers to the deepest problems and longings of our heart. That they don't represent salvation for the world that that has only come through your son. And so we pray for them to have a humility of their own limitations that none of them would think they have authority outside of you, but would humbly acknowledge authority that can only come from you. And we do pray for the ongoing ability for us and people we don't know who are simply longing to live peaceful and quiet lives to serve their neighbors, to serve their communities, to serve our nation, that they would be able to continue to enjoy that freedom to do that. Father, we pray that you would help us to not ever run ahead even in our religious activity and try to do things like your disciples without dependence upon you. But help us in every way we know how for everyone we know to always stay connected to you as the source of our strength and our life. It's in your son Christ's name that we pray, amen.